Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish far away from the presence of the Lord. So just here in these few verses, what do we know about Jonah? Okay, he's rebellious. Alright, he's rebellious. What else? Pardon? He's scared. Okay. He's he's scared, he's rebellious, he's fleeing. What else? Well, he is presumably from uh, Judah or Israel um, since the court he picks is in that area. <laughs> okay. Uh, so so he's he's in that area, Israel and Judah. And <coughs> grab, a, grab a map here. Pick which one I want. Like a kid in the candy store earlier, all these maps. Okay, and this doesn't even have Java on it. Let's switch to this one then. Okay, it's a little fuzzy. Perhaps, yep. So Java would be right here on the coastline. It's pretty much uh, Israel's only port city. For uh, many years, after in Jesus' time, they would have had the port of Caesarea, but primarily now it's the port of Joppa. Uh, so presumably, Jonah was from Israel and Judah. We'll see more about that here in a moment. Okay, what else? He had money. Pardon? He had money. Okay, he had some money. Very good. Good observation. He had some money uh, because he was able to pay for a fare. Because where is Tarshish? That's yeah, it, it's very far to the west. So when Jonah is told, if you uh, switch maps here, when Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, that great city, Nineveh is right here, and Tarshish is somewhere out here. So about the as far as you can go in the opposite direction of what God wanted him to do. So if working for an airline, your lar- your highest fare is going to be most likely to your furthest away destination, unless they're having a sale on Tarshish ships. <laughs> oh, okay, so he has some money. What else? He didn't do what God wanted him to do. Okay. Yeah, and I think we covered that yesterday, that, that God, that Here's a person who's commissioned by God and he's told to speak. And so 
He's not really given a choice in the matter. He's just simply told to go. So he can either accept his commission uh, or he can reject it. And in this case, he rejects it. Uh, what else do we know about him? We know his dad's name. He's the son of Amittai. Okay? He doesn't know a whole lot about God if he thinks that he can lead the presence of him by going in the opposite direction. Okay. That, that's, in, that's, a, that's a good point. And even if one says that one knows God, to, to go and act in such a way, but demonstrates by your actions that you don't necessarily. You might try to get away and maybe hope that God will find somebody else to go do this, but uh, he definitely shows a that he's he's taking a little bit of a gamble here. <laughs> maybe God will forget about him and move on. Okay. Anything else? Any other observations? Okay. He's one that God speaks to, and we are going to see more of that here in just a moment. Uh, and do we, uh, of course, he, we, he goes uh, to Tarshish, and what happens to uh, change his direction a little bit? Okay, we have a great storm. And what is, it? we have these sailors on the ship, that, and what is their reaction to this great storm? They're exceedingly afraid. What's Jonah's reaction to the great storm? Not, 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 not at first. He was sleeping. He was, in fact, he, even, even the, the captain comes down and gets him up and says, what do you mean by this? You come out and you call to your God, just like we're doing, the rest of us are doing. Um, and so they discover that he is fleeing from the Lord, and apparently this has a great... This has... Um, I, I've been trying to puzzle over this, but... They know that he's fleeing from God because he's told them, according to verse 10. But when he identifies himself in verse 9 as being a Hebrew who fears the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land, then the men were exceedingly afraid. I think if you somebody told me that they were fleeing from God, then I would be a little bit hesitant to take him on board in the first place. But it's only after they find out where he's from that they're afraid. What, any thought? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Right. Well, he, he said they ask him who he, they ask him who he is and from what people he is, and he tells them. But in verse 10 it says that the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Well, he just got done telling them, telling them or he told them earlier. I think the reason they're afraid is because he said he fears the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So this is an amazingly powerful God. Okay. Alright, perhaps that's it. Now they understand which God it is he's fleeing from and also that he is of God's chosen people. That this here he identifies himself, where he's from, and which God that he's fleeing from. So these these are people that apparently have some sort of knowledge of God. And so their solution is to do what? Okay. They're going and Jonah's solution when they ask him is what? 
throw me overboard. And so they try everything possible to avoid doing that, which says something about the character of these men. Um, but in the end, they go ahead and honor that. So here, on the one hand, what's the contrast between these two people? They were Gentiles. Okay. All right, so here, here are these Gentiles that are fearing God enough that they're willing to throw Jonah into the sea and ask for forgiveness in the process. Uh, and here's Jonah, who was told to do something and didn't want to do it. Uh, I think, does that come back to what Tim said? I don't want to yesterday. Oh, so he said, I don't, so, so Jonah says, I don't want to go, and goes in the opposite direction. These men, when they find out, they try everything that they can to avoid having to, what they, in their view, is committing murder, uh, but instead they go ahead and throw him overboard. And God, of course, uh, that's not the end of Jonah, because God does what? Okay, so so God is working here with Jonah. It's not that God's going to just let him go. He's going to he's prepared this great fish to swallow him up, and eventually the fish vomits him out onto dry land. And when it does, what is Jonah told to do? Back to Nineveh. Back to Nineveh. Uh, there has some, always been some debate over what Jonah must have looked like after he was vomited up onto the dry land. Uh, because you, when you see how they respond in Nineveh when he gets there to his message, you kind of wonder if there was anything about his appearance or something that, or about his story perhaps that had reached them that here's this person coming in that looks like he's just been vomited up by a great fish. Hopefully so. But it, I throw that out for your for your contemplation. We're not told. All right. So the thrust of the message is that Jonah is told to go, and this time he goes. And this time, this time he goes, and he proclaims the message that God has given him. That he's told in verse two that he will be given a message to present. And in verse 4 of chapter 3, it's the message is 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now what happens when Jonah presents this message? What do the people do? They listen and obey. They listen and they obey. So again, here's a contrast. I think somebody's foreseeing disaster. <laughs> uh, so, so they repent and they obey. And again, presenting a contrast to Jonah who had to be chased down with a fish. Uh, and so what does God do in response to these people's repentance and obedience? He relents. He relents. And what is Jonah's reaction when, the, when he relents? He gets upset. And how do we, how do we see that? <clears throat> what do you think about Jonah getting upset that God didn't destroy the city? Well, 
Well, those were his people's enemies. So I mean, we, we do have to be careful about that. Okay. I think he lost his pride. And his pride was hurt because he just condemned them and telling what was going to happen to him. And now this happens and what's that? I think, I think it might have had something to do with Jonah himself and his feelings for that. You know, here I am. I came and did what God said and now where's his part end of the deal? Okay, that's a good observation. Sometimes we, we get we get so involved in our message and this is what's going to happen. This is the way it's going to be. And then when it doesn't turn out that way, then it's kind of ruined our experience. It kind of leaves us, where do we go? What do we say? Um, yeah, and we're not told that any, that any part of Jonah's message was said that here's how, here's how you escape this. In fact, it seems from what the king says uh, in verse 9 he's, of chapter 3, he says, who knows? God may turn and relent from his and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So it doesn't seem like they had any idea of what they might do in order to avert this disaster. They simply showed their displayed their penitence uh, and, and showed that they were willing to listen to the message that God had for them. Uh, so that that's a good thought. What else? Is, what else do we think about Jonah? In verse two, what Jonah says is the reason that yeah, I knew you were going to do this. Oh, I mean that—that that just seems funny for us to say. I knew that you're gracious. I knew that you're merciful. I knew that you're slow to anger. Turned out just like I thought. That just seems—that seems funny to us in a way. And yet, I think we have a good point that these were uh, these were the enemies, in one sense of. Israel and not so much, and interestingly enough it's not so much they were enemies yet oh I want us to go back and just now that we've thought about Jonah here for a little bit and thought about uh, his reaction to God's message I want to go back and look at some of what we know about Jonah in the rest of the scriptures so that perhaps we can get a get an idea of what would motivate him uh, to be like this. Look back at 2 Kings, the 10th chapter. Let's see. 2 Kings, the 10th chapter, and just to give a little bit of a, a little bit of background, uh, the king in Israel at this point, we're flipping several years earlier, is King Jehu. And Jehu is one of the Bible characters we know, uh, or one of the kings of Israel that we're most familiar with, because he was the one who did what? What king did he help, or what king's family did he help get rid of? He wiped out Ahab's family. That's right. Uh, God had promised that he was going to wipe out the family of Ahab. Interestingly enough, uh, he had promised disaster on Ahab before. And what had Ahab done? Do you remember? He repented. 
And that was actually some, and he repented, and so God pushed off the disaster that was going to be coming upon him. But eventually, he has he anoints Jehu uh, to go and wipe out Ahab's family. And so that's what we know him most from. But uh, does somebody want to work? Some can somebody read verse thirty? Second Kings chapter ten. The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel for the fourth generation. Okay. Now that's a little that's a little bit of a contrast between David and being told that he would never like a man to sit on the throne. Uh, versus this king, being Jehu, being told that his sons are going to sit to the fourth generation. But actually, that's a fairly big deal for the northern kingdom. Anybody can anybody think of why? Those generations tend to wipe out each other. Mm-hmm. You had while you had one family ruling constantly in the southern kingdom of Judah. Up in the northern kingdom, you had. Uh, many different dynasties, many different kings that came to power by assassinating the king that was before them. And so for a king to have four generations sitting on the throne in the northern kingdom, that was, a, that was a, actually a very high compliment. <laughs> uh, and so these four kings are going to sit on the throne, but what's the very ne- what does the very next verse say after, the, after, these, after this promise is made? All right, he didn't walk in, he was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, of the God of Israel, with all his heart. And in particular, it names the sins of Jeroboam. So we've not, not so much the sins of Ahab and the Baals, he had helped to wipe out Baal worship in the northern kingdom, but now they're going back to, the, to what Jeroboam had instituted the golden calf worship at Dan and Bethel. Uh, and so because of that, verse 32, it says, In those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites from Aroer, which is by the valley of the Arnon, that is Gilead and Bashan. So when we're thinking about... Uh, let's see, pick the right map here... Uh, so when we're thinking about these territories, it says that God is starting to carve off pieces of Israel, and now Gilead, uh, the tribes that stayed on the eastern side of the Jordan, they are now being conquered by the nation of Syria. Uh, in fact, at one point, uh, over in 2 Kings, the 12th chapter, and verses 17 through 18, we find that at that time Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. But when Hazael set his face to go up against Jerusalem, Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah his father, as the kings of Judah had dedicated his own sacred gifts and all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord, etc., etc., and sent these to Hazael, king of Syria. So at this point, you have the king of Syria, who would be up in, up in this area, and he's going to go down to Gath, 
which is down in this area. And where does he have to go through to get to Gath? Israel. So he mar he's able to march straight through Israel. So at this point in, in their history, the Israelite nation is extremely weakened. And we're going to, we're going to find that uh, over in 2 Kings chapter 13. Uh, after, um, after Jehu reigns, his son Jehoahaz becomes king and he reigns for 17 years. Verse 2 says that he continued in the sins of Jeroboam. And verse 3 tells us that God is going to continue to give them into the hand of, into the hand of Syria. What does it say in verse 4, 2 Kings 13? Okay. This was interest this is interesting to me because what do we always think about the northern kings? They all had all wicked kings. And I don't think that there's anything in this passage to indicate that there wasn't a, a usual state of wickedness. But we do have some bright spots in here so far, don't we? We have Jehu, who's, pleasing, who's been pleasing enough to God in what he's done, that he's been given this promise of his son's reigning. Then we have his son, uh, when things are going bad, he appeals to God and seeks the favor of the Lord. And I think that's a good lesson for us in that when we think about these kings being wicked, that we have to remember they had some times where they had moments where they remembered who God was, and that's a good thing for all. A good thing for us to keep in mind uh, when we're thinking about these men. Oh, uh, so there is verse seven says that there is not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than fifty horsemen, ten chariots and 10,000 footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. So if you're going to think of all the... How many fighting men did Israel bring in when they first came into the land of Canaan? Just a... Just a 600,000. It was in the upper, upper hundreds of thousands. And so now they, they are down to 10,000 footmen. And... Ten chariots for all of that territory. So now you start to see why Syria can simply march right through one end of the land to the other and not have any mention of any kind of um, any kind of resistance from Israel. Uh, so this is the this becomes the turning point uh, when Jehoahaz began to seek the seek the favor of God. Verse five mentions that the Lord is going to give Israel a Savior so that they escape from the hand of the Syrians and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. So there's, there's salvation that's going to come from this one king who turns his face to seek God. Uh, in the, 14, or in the uh, latter part of chapter 13, we find that now Jehoahaz's son, Joash, is going to take over as king of Israel, or Joash, or Jehoash. We don't find very much about him in verses 10 through 13, but in verses 14 through uh, 20, for, through the rest of the chapter, 
we find him in a uh, little dialogue with Elisha, the prophet, as Elisha is dying. And Elisha gives him a sign that he is, that he is going to be victorious over Syria. We can understand his, Jehoash's cry in verse 14, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. So Jehoash is showing concern because he's inherited a kingdom that really has no army at all. No protection whatsoever. And so he's, he's coming to Elisha who is about to die and who has really been a, a, guiding, uh, a guiding influence on the northern kingdom for these past many years. And so he's concerned about where the nation is going to go after Elisha has passed away. Uh, and so Elisha gives him a sign that he is going to be able to uh, be victorious over Syria. And it says in verse uh, 22 that Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. Uh, verse 24, Hazael, the king of Syria, dies. Uh, verse 25, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father in war. Uh, three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. So Israel has been about at the lowest that they can possibly go militarily. And now, because of God's mercy, they're going to be allowed to come back. They're going to be allowed to retake the cities that had been lost to them. And in fact, in verse 23 of chapter 14, now Joash's son, Jeroboam, so this is now the fourth generation, uh, or including Jehu, uh, Jeroboam's son is going to reign for all of six months. So that would be the fourth generation in the end. Uh, but Jeroboam takes over in verse 23, and he's going to reign for 41 years. And this is going to be, if you have any kind of golden age of prosperity in Israel, and this is the time when Micah comes and begins prophesying about those rich cows of Bashan and uh, begins prophesying against the 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 very rich and wealthy that have neglected the word of the Lord. That's this time frame when Jeroboam is taken over. Let's see, I've got a even have a Jeroboam map. So if you consider that Israel has been at the point where they have hardly no standing army at all to speak of, it says in verse uh, 25 of chapter 14 that Jeroboam is restoring the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah according to the word of the Lord. So, let's see if I can get that up a little higher. There we go. So, we have Syria up here that has been all this problem for Israel and now uh, Jeroboam is going to be able to restore the border up to Lebo Hamath which would be up in this area and Damascus which is part of Syria so now Israel is going to control all this territory from Syria that has been such a problem all the way down to the Sea of the Arabah which would be the Dead Sea down here in the south and you now see that Ju Judah is kind of very isolated here. Now Judah's the one that's having issues. And so Jeroboam is going to control all of that territory. They're at their peak. They're, they've had, God has allowed them to come back 
and be the really restore the borders of Israel to almost where they were when David and Solomon were kings. So there, so God has been greatly merciful to this. Uh, merciful to them. And notice in verse 25, who is the person that told Jeroboam that this was going to happen? And who guided him? It's Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. So now we so now we know a little bit more about Jonah. It said in verse 26 that this was done for the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that He would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So all of that is just to show that this Israel has been about the lowest point they could possibly go. And one of the chief, I don't want to say architects, but the person who's revealing God's plan, God's, uh, God's plan for Israel to the king is Jonah. Jonah is the one that's been able to guide Jeroboam into conquering back all of this territory, into making Israel a powerful nation again, even butting up against the Assyrian Empire that we've mentioned that he is going to eventually be sent to. So up until this point, Syria has been the greatest enemy that Israel has had. And now that the, now they are out of the way. And... Uh, Syria is, has fallen to Israel, and in part that's due to being hit by the Assyrians on the north and Israel to the south, and so, so Syria falls, and now the uh, Israel is strong. Assyria, though, is going to have their own issues, and this is what makes this, this book so interesting. Uh, in Assyria... They had an, had the Assyrian emperor who died very young, and so his so his widow took control until his son could come of age, uh, and then he died young, and without any kind of clear heir. So you have a very uncertain succession going on in the Assyrian Empire. Not only do you have a not so clear succession. But you also have the mighty Assyrian Empire that's now defeated in battle and suffering some massive defeats on their northern front. Not only do you have a a problem with your leadership, not only do you have a problem with your military, but there is an eclipse of the sun which was generally regarded as a bad omen. And all of this is happening right when the nation of Israel is ready to expand. And so it's demoralizing and and depowering the Assyrian Empire. And so Joash and Jeroboam are able to go and take control because of this weakness in the Assyrians. Uh, But it also means that when Jonah goes to the Assyrians, again, what kind of hearts does he find for his message? Okay, they're receptive. They're very receptive to the message. Whatever we need to do, we will do to make sure that this disaster does not come upon us. So both in the case of Israel 
And in the case of Assyria, we find that when you're about as low as you can possibly go, when are, isn't that when you're going to be most receptive to seeking God? So the kings of Israel sought for God when they were at their lows, and now Assyria is at their lowest point, their weakest point ever. Uh, and now uh, they are going to be receptive to the message. So that explains a little bit of why the people would probably be receptive to Jonah's message. But let's think for a moment of why Jonah would be reluctant to take this message. We've already said that the reason that he doesn't want to go is he's afraid that they're going to repent and then that God's going to relent on the message that he has given. Uh, does anybody know where Gath Heifer was? That's a good question. And it's not on the map up here, uh, in part because there is some slight uncertainty as to where it was. Uh, some people confuse it with the Philistine city of Gath, that we'd be down there in the south. But for the most part, people have started to focus on an area up in this, right in here, up in the area of Galilee. That would have been in the kingdom of Israel. But it's also, think about its relationship to some of these other nations. Where is it at? If, it's a, if it was up here in Galilee. It's close to the enemy. It's close to the enemy. And we kind of see that as far in this country, don't we? As far as the... Where is, the, where is there a lot of debate, a lot of talk about illegal immigration? Southwest. Okay, it's, in the, it's where we have a border with another country. Uh, we have mentions of it in Washington State because we're up there on the border with Canada. Uh, but a lot of the talk and a lot of the, publi the publicity is down there in the south, in the states like Arizona and New Mexico and Texas that border on the, on the country of Mexico. And it's somewhat the same, perhaps the same thing here. Who's going to be most concerned about these other nations? It's going to be the people that are on the border. Who would have seen the most destruction and devastation and carnage from these other nations? Israel. Israel. And particularly these towns up here on the northern section or the towns on the east side of the Jordan that had been conquered by Syria. These towns that Israel had to go back and actually retake from Syria. And so if Jonah is from that area, then his area would have been, suffered raids from the Syrians and possibly also from the Assyrians. And so he would have had first-hand experience as to what these people were like. So when we talk about him going to Assyria, we're not just talking about him possibly going to a nation that is an enemy of his people. We're talking about going to a nation that he possibly has some first-hand experience where a nation that he possibly knows, knows people that have suffered under the Assyrians or under the Syrians. And so when he's, going to, when he's told to go prophesy to this nation, it's not just that he's prophesying to the enemies of his people. He's prophesying to, to a people that he has firsthand, possibly has first-hand knowledge of. He's also speaking to the people that 
in essence, part of his job has been to help his king take away territory from these people. So he has been helping to make his own nation strong and he has hoping that the enemies of his nation will be weakened. So Jonah has had a much greater part in this than sometimes we think about. Uh, What else do you think might be in Jonah's mind as he's having to prophesy to this nation? Pardon? Well, they might kill him. That's one. That's one thing. And although, funny thing is, after they receive his message and they repent, and God doesn't destroy the city, what does Jonah say to God? I know that you would do this. And what? But what else does he say? What does he say about his life? Just kill me now. Just kill me now because it's better for me to die than to live. And perhaps he's thinking about what he ha- think about when he has to go home to his countrymen. Well, what were you doing? I was in Assyria preaching to them, and they repented, and God didn't destroy them. You might have some of the same reactions that Jonah would ha- Jonah had here. That well, what did you do that for? Oh, uh, what else? Take. Even as we're talking about these kings seeking the Lord, what do we read in in 2 Kings 14 and verse 24 about Jeroboam? He's doing evil. He's doing evil. In in chapter 15 and verse 9, we find that his son does evil. And of course, what do we already know about the line of Jehu? It's going to come to an end, isn't it? And so Jonah, perhaps, and this is pure speculation, but perhaps Jonah is seeing how his nation is acting and understanding that if God is merciful to the Assyrians, it may be the Assyrians that he uses to come and take, eventually take vengeance on the Israelites for doing what is evil in their sight. So he's had to, had to build up the nation from back, back from where it's been and now he might be looking at all the work that he's done coming to nothing if these enemies are destroyed. So Jonah could be seeing that he's helping that he is uh, helping the people that he's been working against, that uh, that his and then that his own people may fall to them. So his life his life's work is really being potentially being thrown away here. There's a lot in Jonah that we can understand. Right after 9-11, what did some people call for? Uh, for some of the, some of the nations like uh, Afghanistan. Bomb them out of existence. That's the same sentiment that Jonah is expressing here. We see that that God, He wants God to destroy these people. He wants God to fulfill this message that He has been sent to preach, and it's God's mercy that is giving Him, uh, that is giving Him heartburn. So let's make uh, we've got just a short time left. Let's make some applications to ourselves. 
What kind of attitude should we have towards those who are our enemies? Okay, we're supposed to love them. And what else? If we love them, then what else are we supposed to do for them? We're supposed to teach them. We're we're supposed to see them as God sees them. People that are lost and that are in need of correction. And so we need to be taking the message of God to them. Imagine what would have happened if somebody had said, well, I think I'm going to go to Afghanistan and preach the Gospel after 9-11. What do you think the reaction to that would have been? Okay, wouldn't be pleased. Would there have been much hope? It probably, it would have been hard, perhaps hard to get support for a preacher to go out there. Uh, anything else? Those were the thoughts that I had. Um, so we're to be to love our enemies. We're supposed to teach our enemies. And in fact, do we really see people? Should we really see people as being the enemy? Why not? Yeah. Hmm? If we're directed by God, the Canaanites were to be destroyed. Okay. If we're directed by God, all right, then we can see someone as an enemy. What does Paul say in Ephesians, the sixth chapter? What does verse 12 say? For our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces, this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Okay. So our enemies are not enemies of flesh and blood. And so we do have those. Paul does have those. He talks about being enemies in Philippians, the third chapter, that those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, but still we're to see people as being lost. We're supposed to see people as needing teaching. And what else might we find about ourselves? What did Jonah find out about himself? He was not too forgiving. And what did God show him? When he said, I'm going to take, you know, God, you want me to preach to the Nineveh? I'm going to take off in the opposite direction. What did he receive? He received a strong reprimand. He received a strong reprimand. What could God have done? He could have killed him. He said, okay, you've rebelled against me, uh, and so I'm going to have you thrown into the sea, and maybe I won't send a fish to come and save you. He showed mercy on Yeah. He showed mercy on them. He showed mercy on the sailors that had thrown him overboard. So all throughout the book, God is showing mercy to people that Jonah would see, uh, people or the, the Jews would perhaps see as enemies. And so, if you think about it, the very do you think Jonah got the lesson? Yeah, I think he got the lesson. Why do you say? Because he wrote the book. <laughs> all right, that's a good exactly. He wrote the book. And it's interesting that he just kind of we leave off at this very at this very end spot that 
just simply said, God expresses, should I not have mercy on all these people that do not know their right hand from their left and all these animals? He just lets it stop there. Because the book isn't really about Jonah, is it? It's really about who God is. And that God is merciful when people repent before Him. And when people do what He says to do. Is this a God that sees any particular nation as being more or less deserving of salvation? No. No. That's one of the things that the Jews had a hard time dealing with, had a hard time thinking about. To them belong the covenant and the promises. But from this book, we see that God was concerned about all the nations. And we see that reflected in the other prophets, talking about his accept, that he was going to accept the Gentiles that wanted to do what he said and wanted to turn their hearts to him. So this is not just a book about Jonah. It's a book about God and His mercy. It's a book about how He deals with all nations and not just the nation of Israel and shows His concern for all peoples. And we need to have those viewpoints. We need to see ourselves and not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We ought not to look at our nation and think more highly of our nation than we ought to think. We ought to see it as God sees, just one of many nations that He is called upon to repent and to obey Him. And we need to remember that, uh, that people everywhere need the Gospel. I think we're at about quitting time. All right.